0: Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. I've always loved a good adventure story, especially those that feature a journey with an unlikely hero. It's the kind that challenges what we think a hero should look like or how they should act. The unlikely hero adapts to survive and to grow. A specific type of food can be a hero too. Food evolves. A recipe changes when shared between people or when brought from afar. Environment, social mores, culture, and a place in time are all unwritten ingredients in that recipe. In today's episode, we take a look at one such unlikely hero a spring roll, the Nem. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Bridget, and I want to tell you about something I think you're going to love. It's NakedWines.com. They bring delicious, affordable wines straight from independent winemakers directly to your home. Unlike the big wine retailers, NakedWines.com is a customer-funded wine business, with the help of the more than 100,000 member angel community, NakedWines.com supports independent winemakers to make their passion projects. And you can become an angel too with a monthly membership so you can support independent winemakers and get access to delicious exclusive wines in return. Go to NakedWines.com proof for $50 off your first order.
1: So, my mom is from Ghana, which is in West Africa, roughly a 1,000 miles from Senegal. This is reporter Christina Josa. And so, that's where this story really started for me. Sometimes I'll try to get a good meal at a local West African restaurant, and there are a lot of them nearby in New York City. And if you walk into almost any Senegalese restaurant in New York, under the appetizer section, you'll find a spring roll, or mem.
0: And a nem is a Vietnamese spring roll, right? It's fried with vermicelli noodles and meat and vegetables inside.
1: And nems have been popular in the U.S. at Vietnamese restaurants for decades. But here they are in a West African restaurant. So over the years, I started to wonder about the history of how Vietnamese spring rolls got on the menus of Senegalese restaurants in New York City. And that's what this story is about, and turns out it's a pretty heroic journey. And what I'd come to learn is that these Vietnamese turned Senegalese NEMS are almost a tangible record keeper for the Senegalese people over the last century. Well, let's
0: get into it. So, this brings us to the first stage of our journey Chapter One
1: Meet the NEMS. It all started with a war for control of a colony. In the late 1800s, France had gained control of much of what we know now as Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. But back then, France called this colonial territory Indochina. They controlled the region for nearly 60 years. Oppressive colonial rule took a toll. People were forced to
0: work on rubber plantations or in mines. They were divided into peasant or landlord class. And most of the native people were excluded from trade and business. The region changed hands a few times. During World War II, Japan took control of Indochina, and then it went back to French control shortly after Japan's surrender in the summer of 1945. After the war, many Vietnamese people, they had had enough. They were not interested in being controlled by France, Japan, or any foreign power anymore. They just wanted freedom.
1: A nationalist resistance movement formed. It was called the League for Independence of Vietnam, better known as the Viet Minh. The Viet Minh led rebellions against colonial forces throughout the 1940s.
0: The first Indochina War began in 1946. Viet Minh soldiers attacked French military posts and homes in Hanoi. At first, the war was just between France and the Viet Minh. But once the Chinese government began assisting the Viet Minh in 1949, the French realized this war was going to be a lot longer and more complicated than they had hoped. So they turned to the United States, who saw the rise of communism in China as a potential threat, and so they backed France with weapons. But weapons are only useful if you have soldiers to wield them, and the French army had a shortage of men. So, the French government conscripted troops from its African colonies, places like Mali, Guinea, Morocco, and Senegal.
1: The first Indochina war lasted eight years. And during that eight-year period, thousands of Senegalese soldiers were deployed to Saigon in the south of Vietnam. And when they weren't on duty, they explored cities near their postings, places like Saigon, Hanoi, and Haiphong. There, they did what a lot of young people do, went to restaurants, nightclubs, and dance halls. They practiced their Vietnamese, made friends with locals, and met Vietnamese women. By the 1940s and 50s, hundreds of Vietnamese women had married some of these Senegalese soldiers. So the Senegalese soldiers began to make a home for themselves in Vietnam. They started families, settled in. They got accustomed to the local cuisine. Like NEMS. Nims are
0: these little fried spring rolls, and they're typically made with rice paper, vermicelli, a protein like shrimp or pork, or both, and lots of fresh herbs. But there are regional differences. In southern Vietnam, these fried rolls are actually called cha-yo. In the north, they're called ném rain, and the Senegalese soldiers loved them.
1: But things weren't all easy— the French colonizers wouldn't recognize many of these interracial marriages, and a large part of the Vietnamese community weren't too thrilled about them either. Keep in mind, the Viet Minh resistance was very active in local communities, and the Senegalese soldiers were envoys for French colonial oppressors. So these marriages effectively isolated many of these families from the larger Vietnamese community. In 1954,
0: eight years after the war started... The Viet Minh finally defeated the French after a nearly two-month battle at Dien Bien Phu. After the French were decisively beat, the Soviet Union, the United States, France, the United Kingdom, China, and the Viet Minh met in Switzerland, a meeting that would be called the Geneva Conference, to discuss how to end the conflict and reunify Vietnam. As part of the agreement, the French were required to withdraw from Vietnam within 300 days.
1: That meant these Viet-Senegalese families had to either leave Vietnam together, since the Senegalese fathers and the children were considered French, or split up. So now officially no longer welcome in their country, dozens of Viet-Senegalese families left Saigon and set off to start new lives in Dakar, Senegal. And along with all those families who had traveled the seas to their new homes in
0: Senegal, so also traveled their food. Chapter 2 The Nem goes to Senegal. This
1: is General Jean Gomis. He's 86 years old now, but in 1947, when he was just 14 years old, he and his family were among the first Viet Senegalese families to board a ship in Saigon and set sail for a new home in Senegal.
2: I uh, took a boat the Pas when we hit the storm with the Pasteur I was uh, terrified I uh, thought the boat was sinking I hoped that I wouldn't die I
1: think I was afraid that the boat would sink because at that time I could not swim Jean Gomis's father Emil Gomis was one of these senegalese soldiers who married John's mother during the Indochina War in Vietnam. He's a military man through and through, just like his father. He's modest, quick-witted, precise, and unafraid. The ship that Jean Gomis boarded with his
0: mother and his siblings was called the SS Pasteur. It was a massive steamship nearly two football fields long. The ship spent several days maneuvering through the Indonesian archipelago until it reached the Indian Ocean, where it spent a few weeks before passing the tip of Somalia.
1: From there, it moved first through the Red Sea and then through the Suez Canal in Egypt, before sailing through the Mediterranean and arriving, finally, a month after it departed at its first destination, the French port of Marseille. Jean's family stayed in France for a few weeks before boarding another steamship called the Meditou and making their way to their new home, Dakar, Senegal.
0: Jean was excited to see his father's homeland for the very first time. He was also terrified. But Dakar, like Saigon, was a bustling coastal city with a tropical climate, and it was heavily influenced by French culture. So, surprisingly, a lot was familiar to Jean. The schools, the Gothic buildings, the baguettes, even the grapefruit, mango, and apple trees were the same.
1: And as they settled into their new lives— Expats from Saigon like Jean Gomis and his family, they started making familiar food.
3: In
2: uh, Vietnamese families, even Senegalese families, when the father is not around, the child stays behind with the mother. The mother cooks and we watch. But my father was also a cook. He was a cook in the army, so he was a soldier, but he was also
1: a cook. John's family settled in Dakar near other families that had migrated from Vietnam. They often made fried spring rolls together. They would gather in their tiny kitchens before festive occasions, sometimes for weekends at a time, sharing stories and memories, singing and dancing while they prepped.
0: They sometimes used pork for the filling, much like the filling in the Vietnamese NEMS. But Senegal has long been a Muslim-majority country, so they also started using ground beef, chicken, and seafood.
1: Because NEMS required many different, high-quality ingredients, they couldn't afford to eat them too often. Usually they were reserved for birthdays and weddings or New Year's celebrations.
2: Spring rolls were a luxury product, so we do not
1: make them casually. And so Jean learned to make them. He would delicately roll the rice paper just the way his mother showed him and fry the nems, always being careful to keep the oil's temperature at medium. If it's too hot, they'll instantly burn. If it's too cool, they'll be soggy and greasy. But it
2: is not difficult at all. You buy the pork you buy veggies, you buy um, the wrappers. And you grind the pork. You add shrimp, the more money you have,
1: the more shrimp you add. If you are poor, you add less. And NEMs help families, especially Vietnamese women, survive and adapt in Senegalese society. Because integration didn't come easy.
0: Upon their arrival in Senegal, the Vietnamese wives of the Senegalese soldiers were not seen as legitimate in the eyes of their in-laws. At the time, Senegalese marriages were arranged by the male heads of the household. So many Senegalese soldiers felt the pressure from their parents to leave their Vietnamese wives for Senegalese women. Some soldiers did, and
1: others married additional wives. All of this came as a shock to Vietnamese women, who later learned that their husbands weren't cheating on them, but were involved in socially accepted polygamous marriages. It was a cultural norm that was unfamiliar to them. On top of challenges with in-laws and in marriages, there were money issues. Families sometimes had upwards of six, seven, or eight children. And that's a lot of kids to feed on a soldier's limited salary. And parents of soldiers often believed that they had first rights over their sons' pensions, leaving the Vietnamese wives penniless. But making and selling them as street vendors gave them financial independence. Attracting new patrons
0: to this foreign cuisine was likely a challenge. The ongoing tensions between the blended and extended families made making connections very difficult. The Vietnamese women were effectively isolated from the larger communities, and for a long time, so were the foods that they prepared. But once they started selling NEMS on the street,
1: customers were hooked. As word got out about NEMS, customers kept coming, which meant these Vietnamese women soon found other places to sell and share their spring rolls. Over time, they made some money, gained some independence, and integrated more and more with Senegalese community. And
0: the next generations followed suit. And as Jean Gomis grew up, he kept carefully practicing his NIM making. He eventually developed his own signature nem. They were filled with shrimp, pork, crab, vermicelli, and mushrooms.
1: He began teaching other members of the community how to do the same. He invited friends and family over for parties. He prepared elaborate meals overflowing with nems, and here is where we see the nem really making a home for itself in Senegal. Jean Gomis and his nem parties became legend both in and outside of the Viet Senegalese community in Dakar. After the break,
0: the next chapter of the nem's journey. If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello? Hey Caroline, it's Bridget. I need you to finish a sentence for me. Okay. Everything but the...
1: Everything but the...
0: Hmm. Um, cat dragged in? Old fish in the freezer. The peanut butter. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Take, for example, Kohler's Whitehaven apron front sink. It's a farmhouse-style sink made from enamel cast iron, which means it's stain-resistant. Plus, it resists chipping, cracking, and burning. So your sink will look beautiful and will perform beautifully for years. Learn more at Kohler.com.
3: Hey, Proof listeners. It's Jack Bishop, the tasting expert at America's Test Kitchen, and I'm here to talk to you about Miyoko's new Pepper Jack vegan cheese. When I'm reviewing ingredients... I want to know it's in a product, and I want to know how it's made, especially if I'm using it to cook for my family. And you shouldn't need a PhD in food science in order to understand the ingredient list. But Miyoko's is very transparent about their cheese. They start by making a plant milk with oats and legumes, and then they add cultures and ferment it, just like traditional dairy cheese making. Then they finish it off with organic chilies for that quintessential pepper jack bite. So what you end up with is a complex cheese flavor and a classic melty texture without any of the dairy. And you can read the label. Miyoko's pepper jack cheese is good for the planet and good for you. Learn more at Miyoko's.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S.com.
0: Oxo Good Grips launched in 1990 with the initial goal of making a single kitchen task better for a very special someone. Oxo Vice President of Global Brand Strategy and Marketing Karen Schnellwar tells us the story. Our founder Sam Farber was with his wife Betsy. She struggled with mild arthritis, and he watched her peel apples for an apple tart, and he watched her like have trouble with it, and thought, "Gosh, there's got to be a better way." Thirty years later. OXO has created hundreds of products with its signature ergonomic grip, made for all different kinds of hands. It's really, it's beautiful thing when you can include people and empower them. Like we're literally putting tools in people's hands. Learn more at OXO.com. That's O-X-O Before the break, the NEM adapted to its new life in Dakar. And now, the NEM is on the move again. Chapter 3. The NEM goes to the Big Apple.
1: By 1987, Senegal had been free from French rule for over 25 years. And the first generation of kids born into independence were coming of age. And politically, they were pretty radical.
0: They were pushing for reforms to an education system that they saw as still too heavily influenced by the French. So they organized demonstrations and strikes at schools across the country. The government responded by closing the schools nationwide for over a year.
1: Suddenly, an entire generation of students found themselves schoolless. One of the students involved in the movement was Pierre Chiam.
3: When I had the first bite of NAM, I must have been like probably 10 or younger.
1: Like other kids who grew up in Dakar in the 1970s and 80s, Pierre spent his youth going to school, playing soccer on the beach, and reaping the gifts of the peninsula. Fresh seafood, tropical fruits, and of course, nems.
3: Oh, Nem, nem is just um, love at first sight. You know, nem is so beautiful. Just the way it's presented, you know, it's wrapped in crispy looking. And you bite it and there's just the texture of it. And at the interior, you have those vermicelli that, like, just, like, comforting.
1: And Pierre was very familiar with NEMS because his godfather, an uncle by marriage, is Jean Gomis. Jean wasn't like any other uncle. He was the first man Pierre had ever seen cooking in the kitchen, which was and still is a woman's domain in Senegal.
3: And then there's this man who was my parents' friend and my godfather, And I would spend summer vacation at his house, and he loved to cook. And he was cooking flavors that we were not very familiar with, like flavors different than the ones my mom would cook at home. Vietnamese dishes. I mean, he was like just an artist. I was in love with his talent and the, the dishes that would come out of his kitchen. And I remember just being fascinated by him. And his mother, she lived to be a hundred-plus years old, this old Vietnamese lady. And she was just there, too, always in the kitchen making pho and, like, Vietnamese salad ton and nems and all those great dishes that I learned to grow to love.
0: Despite Uncle Jean's influence, though, Pierre did not intend to spend his time cooking. When he was 20 years old, he had big plans to study chemistry and become a scientist or an engineer— But like many of his peers, Pierre was also a student activist. And this is where he was when the Senegalese government shut down the University of Dakar in 1988.
1: So all of a sudden, Pierre had to figure out where he could go to get an education, since that was no longer possible in Dakar. So sight unseen, he applied to Baldwin-Wallace University, a liberal arts school in a sleepy suburb outside of Cleveland. And he was accepted. And just like that, he booked his flight, said goodbye to his family, and set off for Ohio.
0: Taking along with him his memories of home and, you guessed
1: it, NIMS. But Pierre never made it to Ohio. Because on his way to his new life in Cleveland, he decided to spend a few extra days in New York on his layover there. He planned to visit a friend who had recently moved to the city from Dakar, And he was excited to see the city for the first time. He had heard all about it. The bright lights, the pulsating energy, the magic, the electricity. But he was soon disappointed.
3: At the time, there was a crack epidemic in New York City. And my friend lived in a hotel in Times Square on 50th Street, you know. But Times Square was nothing like Times Square today. Nothing at all. It was worse. It was like, you know, Dante's hell, you know, as you can imagine.
1: Back then... Times Square was rough.
0: Before it got cleaned up in the early 1990s, Times Square was a symbol of a city in decline. Subways and buildings were covered in graffiti. There were smutty adult theaters and peep shows on every corner. And on top of that, there was prostitution, drug abuse, high crime rates. Pierre had a front row seat for it all.
3: You'd see needles on the floor. And like, I mean, like, it was just awful. I mean, it was just really so scary, really scary. I had no idea, you know, New York could be anything like this.
1: So I imagine he was excited to get out of there and settle into a quiet Ohio suburb. But then, on his third day in the city, Pierre was robbed. The money he'd brought with him to start a new life, $3,000, by the way, all gone before he even reached his destination. So he had to make a choice. Should he stay in New York or return to Senegal defeated? So he talked to his friend who told him that Garvin's in the West Village was hiring for a busboy.
3: Because I had nothing, you know. So I had my return ticket and my passport. That's all I had. So I went there and uh, studied a busboy job. And uh, that's really when everything changed.
1: Pierre was fascinated with the choreography of the inner workings of a restaurant. Night after night, he watched the waiters bring in orders to the kitchen, and the men in white chef coats turn those orders into elegant works of art. No matter how many times this happened, it was more magical each time. He started picking up extra shifts in the kitchen as a dishwasher, on top of his busy busser schedule. And when he was off duty, he went to a library to borrow Julia Child cookbooks and read them again and again. By sheer luck, the chef at the restaurant
0: loved Pierre and his cool demeanor. And loved even more that Pierre spoke French, just like him. So the chef started to groom Pierre, helped him develop skills in the kitchen. And Pierre worked his way up the ladder.
1: He started off peeling and cutting vegetables. Then he got promoted to the salad station. Then he was promoted again. He became garde-manger. That's the person who runs the cold station and pantry. And after that, he finally got a chance to cook on the grill. Weeks in New York turned to years. Pierre found himself settled in this new
0: life in New York that he had accidentally created for himself. He had given up his original dream of becoming an engineer, but he used his knowledge of chemistry in his
1: cooking. That West Village kitchen became his laboratory. For over a decade, Pierre would work in restaurant kitchens, cooking at an Italian restaurant, a French bistro, a Southeast Asian joint, all the while longing for food from home.
3: I was like, why isn't there any African food, especially here in New York City when it's like the food capital of the world?
1: Pierre wanted to see Senegalese food elevated to a more global cuisine, the kind that Americans of all backgrounds eat. And soon, he got an opportunity to make that happen.
3: So gradually, I started to connect with my mom, getting recipes from my mom over the phone, writing it down, bringing it to the restaurant.
0: Pierre began preparing Senegalese food for his co-workers, first during the staff's pre-service family meals. Then one day, the restaurant owner he worked for let him put West African food on the menu.
3: The first day, I had a special vegetable peanut sauce in the menu as a special. And coincidentally, that day, there was a best landman. She was like a food critic at the time, New York Post, whatever. But uh, she wrote about it and she quoted my dish. And I'm like, this young immigrant sees his dish being quoted in the New York Post. I'm like, wow, you know, that's when I just shifted. And I'm like, that's my mission, introducing this cuisine, you know, West African flavors. They like, they need to be.
1: But Pierre's glory was short-lived. The industry was wildly competitive, and racism and xenophobia tainted the kitchen.
3: Sometimes you turn around and your sauce all of a sudden becomes extremely salty or extremely spicy. This wait, kind of t-
1: wait, wait. Some pe- people <laughs> sabotage?
3: Oh boy, yes, it happened many times in kitchen. I'm sure many other cooks who hear this story right now can connect with it. That's, a, that's part of it. That's really part of it.
1: According to Pierre... There was a lot of tension between the cooks. They were all competing for attention and accolades from the head chef. And to be honest, he dealt with a lot of racism. But he says he never really fought back. Not that he didn't think about it. He just figured he could either let these moments of despair break him or trust the karma to work itself out. So he kept his head down, worked hard, and made a point to taste every dish whenever he introduced a new menu item. And he had a stellar reputation to show for it. And he started getting more and more opportunities. In the late 90s, a friend of his was opening a kosher Southeast asian influence restaurant in Brooklyn. A Brooklyn Southeast Asian kosher restaurant. Right. His friend was this guy named Manahem Scheinberger from the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn.
3: He remembered, cause he'd known me for a while, and he's like, remembered me bringing some Vietnamese influences, and he's like, "There's a community that would love your food if you can make it kosher." You know, would you consult with me on this restaurant?
1: Pierre had worked his way through every role in a restaurant for over a decade, and now he was writing the menu. He was putting his food in front of a new audience, and so he's like, "Yes, let's do it," and he says to Manahem, "Hey." If you want to do Vietnamese food...
3: Well, if you do that, coincidentally, my uncle was retired in Senegal now.
1: My uncle, Jean Gomis, back in Senegal, makes great Vietnamese food. And so Pierre calls up Uncle Jean. So
3: I'm like, hey, would you come with me for a, a month or so and consult on this project?
1: And he says, hey, can you come over to New York and help me? Can you help me put Senegalese NEMS on a menu for a restaurant in Brooklyn, New York?
3: So he came. <laughs> Uncle Jean came. It was funny first
0: time. So Uncle Jean Gomez comes to New York and he gets to work with Pierre. Opening a restaurant is always labor-intensive work, but it turns out making a Vietnamese-influenced menu kosher is exponentially more difficult.
3: Because since it was a kosher restaurant, we had to do everything from scratch, you know. There was no, like... Kosher fish sauce, for instance, so we had to make fish sauce from scratch, buy fresh fish, and discover it with salt in barrels and like wait for the salt to like.
1: And on top of all this, Pierre told me Uncle Jean is a bit older at this point, and he worried he was working him a little bit too hard. But Uncle Jean wanted the food to be just right. Possibly even more than Pierre. Uncle Jean was an excellent cook and he didn't believe in cutting corners.
3: I mean, he's like, he was a, an encyclopedia walking around with him. It's like, it's really quite fun. And then he left me with a, uh, uh, he was like very organized. He left me with a notebook, with handwritten. With a, He's got a beautiful handwritten writing in, of recipes and like everything was like measured and stuff. And that was his thing.
1: And they did it. Manahem had designed the restaurant to feel like Saigon with bamboo finishings, and Pierre and Uncle Jean put together a beautiful Vietnamese fusion menu, complete with perfect recipes for pho and Senegalese nems.
3: It was really, really a great-looking place, but it didn't last.
1: In a truly unbelievable turn of events, some Hasidic inter-community politics led to a group of protesters challenging the validity of the restaurant's kosher status.
3: There was picketing in front of the restaurant, every day, saying that our restaurant was not pure kosher. It was just amazing. Every day, they would come to the restaurant, me, Uncle Jean, and everything is stuff. And they would try to stop the clients and tell them, do you know this is not pure kosher? Like-
0: Without getting into it too much, there are different levels of kosher certification in New York. Some certifications aren't recognized by certain parts of the Hasidic Jewish community. Pierre suspects that there may have been some additional behind-the-scenes politics fueling all of this.
3: But it was a great experience for the people who managed to come in and just um, go through the the picketing. They were fine. They loved the food. The food was great. Mm. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, for some people, it wasn't pure kosher. It wasn't kosher, so.
1: And the restaurant didn't survive. At first, this might seem a little anticlimactic, I mean, Pierre finally got his chance to put NEMS on a restaurant menu, only to be shut down by a conflict over his kosher certification. It was a disappointing setback, but it wasn't the end of the NEMS story.
0: It's been 30 years since Pierre Chiam arrived in New York. Eventually, he went on to open his restaurants, Yolele, and another, Le Grand Dakar, where Senegalese NEMs were front and center on the menu. He's written three cookbooks. In many ways, you could say that he's accomplished exactly what he set out to do, put Senegalese food on the American food map.
1: In the 90s, the combination of an economic downturn in Senegal and the allure of the new diversity visa program in the U.S. drove thousands of new Senegalese migrants to start new lives in New York. Fellow expats like Pierre had already established communities in Harlem and Brooklyn, which is where many new arrivals became street vendors, hawking Senegalese NEMs to other West African immigrants and local New Yorkers alike. Just like the Vietnamese woman did in Dakar all those decades ago. And so, after a journey of seventy
0: years and thousands of miles, NIMs have found yet another home.
1: What the NEM has become since it first arrived in Dakar is a completely different version of what it was in Saigon. And it's different from what it is today in New York, because ultimately, it's a representation of the stories of the people who carried it from place to place. But Petit Senegal in Harlem is changing. Brooklyn is definitely changing. The pressure of gentrification is knocking. And it's not certain how it will affect the Senegalese community. Younger generations are less and less connected to their past. Many young Senegalese people aren't learning Vietnamese like they used to. Some don't even know that NEMs are Vietnamese. So who knows what the next chapter will be? Do you think that That lack of knowledge, that lack of connection to the history will affect NEM survival later
3: on? No, 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 NEM is here to stay. And that's the beautiful thing about food, you know. Food is, is uniting us, food is bringing us together. You know, if you go to Louisiana or New Orleans or, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, you see our food. And exactly with the same flavors, just with some environmental changes, but the same way we do it in Lagos or Dakar or Accra, you know. And you see it in Brazil, you see it in Ecuador, you see it in Colombia, you see it in Mexico. You know, it's like, it's really amazing how our food survives, you know. And it's the same thing. Those people have been cut from their sources, from their roots, but the food stayed. And that's going to be the same with NEM, you know. NEM is going to stay.
0: Thanks to Christina DeJosa and Victoria Marin for reporting the story. If you want more information about this episode, well, we've put some stuff up on our website for you. And that's www.americastestkitchen.com proof. Go check it out. And if you like proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there... Why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is a freshly fried NEM and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, OXO, Miyoko's Creamery, and NakedWines.com. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Hey there. If you're listening to Proof, there's a pretty good chance that you may have a bit of a geeky streak in you. So, we've got another nerdy show to recommend. Science Diction is a new podcast from Science Friday and WNYC Studios. In each short episode of Science Diction, host Joanna Mayer digs into the origin of a single word or phrase. And she shows just how much science is baked into our everyday speech and conversation. Did you know that the word meme has more to do with evolutionary biology than the internet? Or... That the word cobalt has mischief baked into its name. Hmm. You can find science fiction on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts.